Well, Seth, where the heck are we? We are at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, Louisiana, my home away from home for 15 years. And uh, we are here at the 16th Annual International Conference on World War II. Let me see. Uh, it doesn't say it on there, but that's where we are. And that's what that's we're right. here for, I yeah. think so. It's been a good show so far. Today is Friday, December the 8th, 2023. Um, you got in late last night. I was here earlier in the day, um, yesterday, and then all day today. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to take you guys through some of the exhibits and Road to Tokyo, which is in the Campaigns Pavilion here at the National World War II Museum. Uh, Road to Tokyo, obviously appropriate for our show, so that's what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. uh, if you ever have the opportunity, come check this place out. Yeah, now that's... One of how many? Three pavilions here at the oh, museum? Oh, God. I don't even remember anymore. So you got over there, across the street, you have the original pavilion, or the original building, which was a brewery. I always have to point mm -hmm. that out because this is New Orleans, you know. That's where the original D-Day galleries are. That's where is uh, the home front galleries are now, which we called, at, the museum calls the Arsenal of Democracy. And it talks about just that. The arsenal of democracy covers Pearl Harbor, fall of the Philippines, mm -hmm. all that really early war stuff. Talk about the uh, Manhattan Project. Talk about USS Indianapolis in there. And then the, it's, it's kind of smack in the middle of the museum for good reason. Of course, there's the Campaigns Pavilion, which is right here as we're standing here filming this next to our, our buddy Chet here. Um, and that covers the road to Tokyo and the road to Berlin. That's the PTO and the ETO, and that's all the combat. That's the heart and soul of the institution. That's where the oral histories live. That's where the artifacts live. That's where the story of the war is. Behind us here is the, uh, oh God, I forget, the stage door canteen. There's two restaurants in there. There's a gift shop. There's a theater. Um, offices and other stuff that nobody wants to see, least of all me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the building to our left behind us is a monster. And it is cool. It's impressive. It's a U.S. Freedom Pavilion, the Boeing Center. Uh, that covers what we used to call, we called it LSA back in the day, land, sea, and air. And it covers everything in regards to that. That's where the World War II Museum's macro artifacts are, the big stuff, the tanks, the Sherman tank, SBD Dauntless. That, no surprise here, was assigned to Bombing Squadron 10 and flew off the USS Enterprise. I wonder why. Actually, I had no, I had no choice in that. Is but that it's, right? it, yeah, I swear to God, but it was really cool. Um, please do not lean on sculpture. Hey, that's yeah, directed to me. <laughs> um, but there's all kinds of cool airplanes in there. That's where the USS Tang exhibit is. Um, it's a really neat institution. And of course, the last building that just opened up is directly behind the camera in front of Bill and I right here. Is the Liberation Pavilion. Um, of all the buildings on campus, that's the only one I didn't work on. Um, but it's brand new. It is brand new. It opened yeah. last month. Yeah. Last month. It's pretty good. You walk through it today. Uh, a colleague of mine and I walked through it today, and it's, uh, it's very moving. Yeah, it's very moving. Yeah, so we're only going to take you through the Road to Tokyo exhibit. We are the unauthorized history of the Pacific War. Uh, but we love our museums. Mm -hmm. Or you work at one. I do. Right? I do. I do. And so we encourage all of you to get down here to New Orleans. If you haven't already done it, uh, by the way, we met several of you here. Yes. Thank you for coming and saying hi to us. Thanks. Um, it's wonderful to see so many people show up at this conference yeah. and watch the podcast. It's encouraging, too, to see that many people show up for a conference on World War II, you know, because unfortunately, as you, as you well know, especially with your dealings with the Indianapolis, most of those guys are gone. Not all of them by any means, but most of those guys are gone. 
and the way to keep their memory alive is through museums like this, through museums like mine up at Camp Shelby, and through conferences like the one we were attending. The oral histories that yeah. you recorded while yeah. you were here. Yeah. And it's just remarkable. There is, uh, I met already one 101-year-old veteran of the European Theater of Operations, George. I think you know George. And I, ha I think there's a... A PTO veteran here as well, but I haven't met him. I've seen a guy walking around. I, yeah. I haven't had a chance to talk to him yet, but yeah. I've seen a guy walking, walking so, around too, which is pretty it, good. Again, we uh, highly encourage you to get here. We're going to show you a tiny fraction. We don't mm -hmm. have the time no. to, to take you through this entire museum. I was able to do that in Hawaii because it took an hour. This would take all day, and we want to get back to the conference. It, it would take several days. <laughs> exactly. Several days. All right. Well, Chester, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, he's as stone-faced as he ever was. He appreciates it. Yeah, he, he appreciates it. So on behalf of Chester Nimitz, thanks to everybody who's been watching, and we'll see you. All right, so here we are in the National World War II Museum in, in New Orleans, Louisiana. We are currently standing in the Road to Tokyo Gallery, which is part of the Campaigns Pavilion. Uh, the Campaigns Pavilion here at the National World War II Museum covers the fighting uh, part of World War II. We cover the infantry campaigns, we cover the air campaigns, and the naval campaigns. Uh, for those who don't know, I was one of the chief historians here for 15 years. Uh, part of my, what, a massive part of my uh, job here at the National World War II Museum was to build the archives and build these exhibits, create these exhibits from scratch. And uh, we're going to take you around through here briefly and show you why some of the things are the way they are, show some uh, I'll probably not show the oral histories, but point them out, and you'll see, you'll probably recognize some names in there that you, if you've listened to our show or seen our show, you'll recognize some of these names, and you'll understand why we feature them as we go through. So, we introduced this aspect of Road to Tokyo, the Pacific, Pacific Galleries of National World War II Museum, and the best way we could, we tried to make a facsimile of the bridge of a naval vessel. Uh, and appropriately, the bridge of the naval vessel that we chose is none other than USS Enterprise, CV-6. I don't know anybody who would have made that choice. I, I have no idea who <laughs> may no, have no, put no. their finger on the dial there to get that done. But there's a pretty cool artifacts in here. And if anybody's ever, if anybody's a collector, of which I'm not really, you'll know that anything from USS Enterprise is almost impossible to find. And there's an artifact in here we're going to show you in just a second. It is literally one of the coolest things that's in this entire institution. All right. <clears throat> I'm shocked, shocked that it's the Enterprise. Yeah, really, no kidding. Huh? Yeah. So as small and as minute as it may appear, this little dial telephone directory right here is was aboard USS Enterprise in 1941 all the way through the Battle of Midway. The ship was so big that they had, <clears throat> excuse me, they had telephones in each of the officer's staterooms, much like that one that's sitting right there. And officers could call one another to check in and say, hey, you know, Bob, where are you, or whatever. And unfortunately, the book is not open, but if you were to open the book and look inside the book, there's a phone number for Admiral William Halsey's stateroom aboard USS Enterprise, Dusty Cleese, who, of course, Battle of Midway fame, uh, Earl Gallagher, Wade McCluskey, all their names are inside that book. So this thing was aboard the ship when those guys were serving on the ship. And it is incredibly cool. I just, the only thing, when we put this in here, the only thing I wish we had done was open that sucker up 
so you could see the names in there because it's literally a who's who of United States Naval Aviation from December 7th until after the Guadalcanal campaign. Mm. It's absolutely incredible. It's one of my favorite artifacts in this entire place. I'm going to jump in here, Seth, because this is a uniform that many of our viewers may not be yeah. familiar with. Those aviation. are called aviation greens. Uh, yes, the aviators not just had brown shoes and the black shoes, and the surface guys had black shoes, but they also wore a completely different uniform. And this is obviously the lieutenant commander. This looks a lot like a Marine uniform, but it's not the same. Right. And of course, you got a chief petty officer's dress blues here and uh, Navy lieutenants, uh, choker whites or service dress whites. Um, I suspect these are all from crew members. You know, honestly, I, I'm, I'm going to sound like a fool here, but I do not recall. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's, it's, it's been a long time. Enough, and, I mean, and these are all original, yes, yeah. no, no doubt, no doubt. But yeah. uh, mm -hmm. some of these, so this guy here served, Roland Bruce, or this is a Louisiana native, you can tell by the last name. Okay. He served for the USS Ed Harris. So mm -hmm. the way what we did when we constructed these exhibits is we tried to tell the story. Specifically, we're just going to stick to the Pacific War for obvious reasons. We tried to tell the story as it evolved chronologically. Mm -hmm. And you'll see, you know, the first gallery that you walk into here is what, a place in the, in the museum that, that we call New Naval Warfare. Because you got to remember in the late 1941, early 1942, carrier warfare, warfare and submarine warfare, which we cover around that corner, was new naval warfare. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's all new to the United States. So we're looking at it from that aspect. We're also covering the chronological defeats, not in heavy, heavy detail here, because we talk about that in another portion of the museum's galleries in the background. My phone's going off. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Okay. But we could. So the... Well, it's, an, it's December 8th as we're recording this. Correct. So we're uh, one day late, but I was in timely. Washington it's yesterday. Timely. It's very timely. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you were in the middle of that, though. To defeat the Nazis first. In the meantime, the United States intends to send just enough troops to the Pacific to prevent Japanese advances. Within days, Japan upsets the strategy. With an insatiable appetite for land and resources, the Japanese continue to sweep across the Pacific. You don't have a lot of Japanese footage, do you, Say again? Do you have a lot of Japanese footage? Uh, we have some, and you'll see some scattered throughout here. So that was, that was another part of my tasks when we were building this thing, was to provide all the footage. And you'll see, if you, if you have a sharp eye for archival footage, which is a special talent in and of itself, you'll recognize that every piece of footage that you see as this exhibit unfolds is timely to that time period. Mm -hmm. So every single shot you're seeing here is pre-June 1942. And because I'm such a dork, I made sure that it was like that. So as you go through, you don't see anything that's out of time context. Mm -hmm. You go to the Battle of Midway Gallery, everything you're seeing is June 42 or behind it. And beyond, okay. Yeah. And by behind it, I mean previous. Yeah, I understand. But yeah, there is some Japanese footage where it's appropriate, like here. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And you know, Japanese archival footage, they shot a lot of it during the war, but not a lot of it survived the war. I see a lot of that stuff got burned, not only by our firebombing campaign, which is the God's honest truth, but also the Japanese themselves. Right. They didn't want any record of a losing event, so there's a lot of it that got trashed, unfortunately. Right there. Yeah. And I see that's one of the things, too. So when we were building all these, and it's just like in every museum that you go into, you assume that the public knows nothing. Mm -hmm. and, and by that, and I'm not trying to, to sound snarky, but, but you assume that most people don't know anything because most people don't have the level of knowledge that we have. Yeah, they don't. So everything is written and everything is presented at an eighth grade level. Literally, that's what you do. And and it's it's not to degrade or undermine anybody's intelligence, intelligence or anything like that. It's to orient everybody. Mm -hmm. You want to get the same message across to everybody. Yeah. So people that, like people that watch our show, they're going to look at this and go, well, I know that. Well, yeah, you do. But the 17-year-old does not. Yeah. You know, so, and, that, and that's the way we present things. Yeah, our, um, our viewership is not representative. No. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. So, and another thing that we did as we go through here, and, and this is all throughout the entire museum, is that, of course, we did oral histories. You know, we did a lot mm -hmm. of oral histories, and there's oral histories that you're going to see in some of these exhibits. Um, but there's a lot of famous people that were passed on mm -hmm. by the time we were getting around to interviewing. And whether they were killed in the war or they just died, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's irrelevant to us. We wanted to make sure we represented a lot of people that are somewhat well-known and some of them that aren't. So you'll see these personal story panels at DOT, the museums, galleries. Um, yeah. And a lot of them are people that you do recognize, like Dory Miller and people like that, much Morton. But James Fahey is somebody that you don't really know who the hell he is. Mm -hmm. He wrote a fantastic book. He uh, was a was a seaman first class, and he had uh, a diary that he kept all through the war aboard the USS Montpelier. And it's probably, it's, it's the Eugene B. Sledge version of the U.S. Navy. It gives the bird, or the ground level view, or sea level mm -hmm. view, if you will, of World War II Pacific Navy life. And Jimmy Thatch, mm -hmm. author of the Thatch Weave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's all you have on defective torpedoes, Seth? I'm that disappointed. Is, that is it. <laughs> that is it. Yeah. It's a lot of war to cover. I know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you know, these individual pieces of our artifacts like this aren't, you know, overall, aren't overly compelling to someone if you don't read the stories about them. I understand. Know, every single yeah. thing belonged to a person that did something. Mm. Obviously, I encourage our viewers to come visit this place. Oh, yeah. Now, now the, the, the insignia on the back of this jacket is called the submarine patrol, the war patrol pin. So it's different than the dolphins. You qualify to get the dolphins, but you don't get a patrol pin unless you've been on a combat patrol. And so the stars beneath you know, are different colors, but, but you know, essentially you get a star for each patrol you went on. But it changes color when you've been on five patrols. So that's what that's all about. It would be worn on the pocket flap. So keeping with the Enterprise theme that's going to continue. Mm -hmm. This is a representation, a facsimile of her scoreboard in 1942 from the beginning of the war to the end of the Guadalcanal campaign. Mm -hmm. And there are pictures of this very thing. And, and, and I believe the original is in the Washington Navy Yard's U.S. Navy Museum, if I'm not mistaken. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I watched a girl hand paint this. All this is hand painted. And if you look at an original image of this compared to this, it is identical. Wow. It, the girl could have been a fantastic counterfeiter mm-hmm. because uh, she did an amazing job. Wow. So some of the more poignant aspects of the war, and by that I mean large events like the Battle of Midway, which is there, mm-hmm. uh, contained are contained in their own theater. You know, you can talk about Midway on a panel, which you do here, but to give it its due justice, it needed its own private theater, which is in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's we don't go down into the weeds in a lot of these you know, mm-hmm. movies, but we give just enough to kind of whet the appetite. Mm-hmm. Wade McCluskey. Now, I assume you had a collection of people writing a copy for these? Say again? You had a collection of historians who wrote the copy for these uh, panels? I wrote the copy for these panels. You wrote the copy. I wrote the copy for these panels. (laughs) I chose the images, and I wrote the copy, and the captions, and all the archival footage. Wow. Rich Frank uh, was working with us. He was the, as I call him, which he doesn't like, but he does, he, he, Rich is a very sarcastic man. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I call him the Grand Poobah, which he thinks is funny. I think it's hysterical. Uh-huh. And, but he is. He's the Grand Poobah of, of Pacific War historians. He was working with us step by step through this. Mm-hmm. And that's how I really got to know Rich really well. I see. And, which has been a blessing my whole yeah. you know, career. Fantastic. Just knowing Rich Frank because he's a fantastic human being. Um, landing signal officer. Just landing signal officer. That was Robin Lindsay. So again, Robin Lin- Lindsay. Yeah, from USS Enterprise. What you're standing on now, if you look down, is theoretically the flight deck of the USS Enterprise. Yeah. Uh, at one time, it was stained sea blue, just like the Enterprise's flight deck was. And if you look closer to the screen, you can see the sea blue stain. Mm-hmm. But it's worn off. It has worn off, much like the flight deck would have worn off. Yeah. The stain would have. And uh, I went to Great Lace, and I actually contacted some surviving members of Enterprise at that time and they had color images of her flight deck and we used that to color match the stain so mm-hmm. when it was originally stained it was a dead ringer for the Big E's flight deck how about that stain. Yeah. not so now much this, isn't, this wasn't teak on the Enterprise flight deck was it? it's Douglas Fir Douglas Fir Douglas Fir yep Douglas Fir she the footage here anytime Rich Frank comes to this museum he likes to stop and watch this because this is something that he and I, this is one of the only films in the entire exhibit that he and I worked on, like, literally side by side. Mm-hmm. And all of this footage, every single second of this footage, is aboard USS Enterprise mm-hmm. in the year of 1942. Every single thing that's okay. in there. Yeah. Which is cool because we haven't gotten to Guadalcanal yet if you look at the, the trajectory of where we are. There's some incredible footage in here. And those who've watched our show might recognize some of the somebody yeah. in here. Yeah. You know, again. Yeah. yeah. And Dixon, I don't know his story. Robert Dixon. So Bob Dixon was a commanding officer of Bombing Squadron 2. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sorry, squ- Scouting Squadron 2, VT- VS2, aboard USS Lexington, CV2 mm-hmm. of Coral Sea. Bob Dixon flew the strike on, US, on uh, Japanese carrier Shoho, 
and he's the one that sent the famous message back to Lexington, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. scratch one, scratch flat, one top. flat top. Right. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. him. That was Bob Dixon. Right. Right. So come over this way. Okay. So the oral history collection is the heart and soul of the National World War II Museum. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, again, if you've watched or listened to our show, you'll recognize a lot of names in here. Um, Walter Nelson, Norman Cleese, that's Dusty Cleese. Dusty Cleese, yeah. And Don Hoff, mm-hmm. Bert Ernest, Sweet Veneza. You know, there's guys in here that have been in some way, shape, or form in our show. Um, Bill Roy, we talked about in the episode that we did with mm-hmm. John, where we talked about, where we did the, explored the Yorktown wreck. Yes. And we showed the combat footage from Yorktown. Mm-hmm. That's the guy who shot it. That's the guy who filmed it. Okay. Uh, Jim Allen was a sailor aboard USS Wahoo on her first, second, and third war patrol. Uh, he was on that famous patrol where Marsh Morton took over the whole, mm-hmm. you know, the Wahoo's fi- yeah, famous the patrol. Yeah, being a... Yes, O'Kane exec. The instigator. Yeah. Yeah. And so you have a wand here and you hear the narration. Yeah, it looks right. like the old telephone booth mm-hmm. phone yeah. things, you know. Right. They're probably incredibly disgusting, but it is what it is. Yeah. But, you know, people ask all the time, you know, do you have any artifacts from Midway or anything like that? No, we don't. We have artifacts from people that served at Midway, and that's what's in that case here. Right. So as you're leaving the Battle of Midway, and again, follow the trajectory of our show, you know that the next step in the road to Tokyo is Guadalcanal. Canal. And that's what this entire gallery deals with. Mm-hmm. So you got, again, here, you got more oral histories here. Guys like Frank Pomeroy at Tenaru River, Bloody Ridge, Swede again, getting his seven kills at Santa Cruz, Sid Phillips, my old buddy, Dr. Sid. You know, there's all kinds of people in here that are mentioned in our show, Harold Ward, USS San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's This has been the lifeblood of this institution mm-hmm. since it was formed. This is a visually stunning and brilliant um, exhibit here. Uh, it's very pretty. Just, um, yeah. It'll probably come across really good on that camera, but I hope so. Yeah, it's, uh, I may need to close down on. Uh, yeah, there's a limit to what I can do because it's kind of dark in here. It's very dark. Yeah, mm-hmm. it does get brighter as you get out, but this is mm-hmm. supposed to represent the jungle canopy, if you will. Yeah. The Americans intend to halt the Japanese advance and protect their allies by sending in the Marines to seize the airfield on So I'm a gun guy. I've always been a gun guy. <laughs> always will be a gun guy. Yeah. And the weapons in here, every single weapon that's in this case mm-hmm. is fully functional, mm-hmm. including the Johnson rifle. Oh, really? There's two weapons in here, well, three technically, that are absolutely incredibly cool, one of which is the Johnson. The one up below it is that 1918 BAR. It's one of the finest examples of a 1918 BAR in any museum anywhere. Mm-hmm. The third is that Model 55 Rising submachine gun right there with the folding stock because, and I do not remember the gentleman's name, but he carved his name on the side of the wood, st- on the side of the uh, foregrip, mm-hmm. if I remember. And we tracked his name down, and that weapon was used by one of the first Marine Raider battalions at Bloody Ridge. Oh, really? That is a combat-used rising submachine gun from Bloody Ridge, from Edson's Ridge on Guadalcanal. Holy cow. Yeah. Talk about the Springfield. 
So that's the 03 Springfield. That's a 1903 Springfield. Of course, introduced, no surprise here, in 1903, used in World War One. Not as often as people think, you know, the famous movie Sergeant York, Sergeant York shooting an 03, and in reality he shot a 1917, but regardless, the 03 is what was given to the United States Marines and the United States Army at the beginning of World War II. Um, there were more M1 Garands that were available than most people think, but when the Marines hit the shore in Guadalcanal, that is what they were on was by and large, all of these weapons actually, um, specifically the O3, the Thompson, and the BAR. The Rising didn't see much combat after the Solomons campaign because it was kind of a beast to clean. Okay, fun fact for Bill is that when I went to boot camp, Navy boot camp in 1974, we were issued O3 Springfields. Nice. We didn't. We we carried M1s at the academy, but at boot camp, enlisted boot camp, we carried this O3 Springfield. Yeah, beautiful weapon. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful weapon. Mm-hmm. So this little thing right here, it looks rather inconspicuous. Number nine, right there. That is a 37 millimeter canister shot. Okay. We yeah. always talk about the 37 millimeters Tenaru. at Tenaru River. Yep. We talked about them on the beach at Saipan when mm-hmm. the Japanese made that tank assault and mm-hmm. infantry assault, and the 37s are blasting away with canister. That is a canister round in a 37 millimeter. It's yeah. an enormous shotgun shell. Yep. Literally. And devastating. Absolutely. And that's a 37 right here. That's the gun. That, that is the weapon. Yes. Yeah. That is a 37 millimeter anti tank gun. Mm-hmm. There's little Easter eggs hidden out throughout this place. I can uh, imagine. There's little things as we were putting everything in here together. There was an actual, like a literal stage company that came and built all this stuff in here. Uh-huh. And then we came, I, my friend Larry DeCures and I, came and set all the little artifacts in the background. And mm-hmm. there's a couple of rats hidden around in here because Guadalcanal yeah. is famous for the rats. <laughs> I frankly don't remember where they are anymore, but yeah. there are rubber rats stuffed mm-hmm. in here somewhere. But uh, the coolest Easter egg that nobody knows, or if they do, they don't. it doesn't click, is actually back here. And if you look there, you'll recognize the silhouette of USS Washington, BB-56. The scene that that is supposed to replicate is, of course, the battleship fight, which is still to this day my favorite episode that we've ever done. Mm -hmm. That is the silhouette of USS Washington. And I forget which Japanese uh, heavy cruiser back there. There were escorts to Kirishima. Mm -hmm. And if you look behind the tree on the right, you'll see the silhouette of... Karishima back there. Way in the back. You'll see her way in the back. And they're actually positioned, they're obviously much closer than they were in reality, but they're positioned in the accurate representation of which they were when the battle occurred. Okay. Yeah, hopefully uh, it's pretty dark in here, but I think this well, will I come can out. see it. Yeah, I yeah. can see Washington in there. Yeah. Mm. Not Sodak, but Washington. Correct. And I, <laughs> if I remember correctly, yeah, I don't think we, no, we did. Yeah, you do see South Dakota in the back. Oh, you do? Yeah, because she was trailing Washington. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But again, nobody can say it back there. Like, nobody knows it's there. You like battleships? Yeah, just a, just a little bit. I like the submarines. Yeah, for sure. I don't know why. <laughs> and who's that dude? That would be yeah. William F. Halsey. Yeah. He was an ugly guy. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm was... insulting any of his family members, but <laughs> he was not a 
handsome man. So of course, the gun here, the weapon here, is a 1917 A1 water-cooled machine gun. Mm -hmm. These were technically heavy machine guns that were used by 1st Marine Division on Guadalcanal. Of course, they had 50 cals as well. But yeah. Now, which was the machine gun that Barcelona carried? Uh, it would have been this one. One of these, yeah. right? Yeah. Dave I, Holland will... I thought so, but I, a, I asked the question when I'm not sure, because I know yeah, you're going to know the answer. No, it's... it's I'm about 99.9% sure it was in 1917. Yeah. Because <laughs> his company, D Company, he was a machine gun company, so they would have had to... Well, in your miniseries, The Pacific, he... Uh, yeah, they show him picking that, it up and resting it on Yeah, but then, then he invents this little, yeah. um, little handle, handle that yeah. he uses to yeah. hold it. And, Which I don't know how truth, truthful yeah, that is. It doesn't frankly. look like you could actually do that with this machine gun. So, yeah... <clears throat> It's not like Hollywood never makes stuff up, right? No, no, no. So one of the most, I got to show you this because this okay. is just neat right here. Of course, we always talk about the blue ribbon. Uh-huh. Yeah, of course. There's many, there are many medals of honor within these galleries. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the first one you encounter in Road to Tokyo. This was the medal of honor that was awarded to First Lieutenant Jefferson de Blanc, who was native mm -hmm. of Louisiana, was a Marine Corps fighter pilot, was an ace. He acquired, obviously, the Medal of Honor. Mm -hmm. This thing standing next to you, which I guarantee you, 99 out of 100 people don't even notice this thing. But what it is is a tribal fishing spear that Jeff DeBlanc used. So his aircraft took damage, and he had to put it down in the water. And he went to a, or he made his way, rather, to a an occupied island. And it had Japanese on it and friendly natives. Well, the friendly natives took care of him and sheltered him. Mm -hmm. and, and they, you know took care of him. Mm -hmm. Japanese knew he was there, but they didn't know where he was. And there was a rival tribe, if mm -hmm. you will, on the island that was trying to get Jeff from the friendly natives to give to the Japanese. Mm -hmm. And long story short, and I'm probably forgetting vital aspects of it, I remember Jeff DeBlanc saying, nobody knows exactly how much their life is worth, but I know how much my life is worth. Mm -hmm. Because the Japanese friendly natives tried to buy Jeff from the friendly natives for three sacks of rice. <laughs> he says, so I know my work, my life is worth three sacks of rice. <laughs> That's funny. He was given this spear by the friendly natives so he could feed himself. Mm -hmm. So he used that spear to get fish and until he was picked up by Navy PBYs and brought back to Guadalcanal. And mm -hmm. he brought that spear home with him. So. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Three sacks of rice is pretty good. Three sacks of rice. Yep. That's how much his life was worth. <clears throat> A map. Our viewers always want to see maps. Yeah, they do. So the former president of this museum, Dr. Nick Mueller, the great mm -hmm. guy, uh, Dr. Mueller was a fanatic for maps. Mm -hmm. So our viewers would absolutely adore Dr. Mueller because he yeah, insisted yeah. that maps be placed mm -hmm. literally everywhere throughout these exhibits. And that's probably why I have an aversion to maps. <laughs> it's because of Dr. Mueller's insistence yeah. that everything has to have a map. God love him, though. He's a good dude. Mm -hmm. Good dude. So we try to, this This is kind of, if you will, this is kind of halftime 
in the exhibits. Uh, you know, and it's kind of like kind of like what we did in our show. Mm-hmm. You know, we poured all this effort into 1942. We talk about Guadalcanal and all that stuff. And then, obviously, there's a lot that goes on in 43 in the South Pacific. And some of that stuff, unfortunately, we did not have the room to cover in here. And this is kind of the catch-all gallery. This is where we talk about CBs and, and medical surgery and, and tropical diseases and everything else that goes on in the Pacific. Uniforms. And, yeah, and, of course, for gun guys and uniform guys and gearheads, this is like the end-all be-all right here. Yeah, and of course the Marines call their uniform, their, their uh, combat uniform, dungarees, dungarees. Just, like the just like the Navy the called theirs. Yeah. Um, and that evolved. So this is a good place we start talking about island hopping. Because again, remember if you're in, if you're going through chronologically, you're in oh probably about June, July of '43 right mm-hmm. now as we stand. And we're starting to talk about that island hopping campaign. We do address some of the South Pacific islands that we talked about in the Solomons, like Bougainville mm-hmm. and places like that, in here. But then as we roll through here, we start hitting the Central Pacific drive. Mm-hmm. There's two guys that we've covered extensively right there, Holland and Smith and Happy Boeington. Mm-hmm. And we had kind things to say about Holland Smith. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, Dr. Mueller, when we were designing these exhibits, what he wanted to talk about and he wanted to make a big deal out of was that photograph right there. Uh, that photograph that you see, of course, was taken by Marine Corps combat cameraman aboard, on, on aboard Basio. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that was one of the images that was sent back home to the United States. Right. And uh, you can imagine as a civilian thinking that everything's hunky-dory and you're sitting there eating your steak on a Sunday morning, steak and eggs, and you, you open, open your newspaper, newspaper and you see that. And it's going to be a smack right in the mouth. Or, you or you're going to the movies to see Bambi. I, I don't even know if that is chronologically correct, if it was out by then. And they open with a newsreel, and, and they wouldn't have done that with the children's. No, movie, not but, with the kids. But, yeah. but you'd have gone to see, you know, I don't know, yeah. whatever the hell, right. and you're going to see that. And then yeah. it was designed to do that for that very reason, mm-hmm. to smack people in the face and let them remember that there was a war on. And we talked about that in our show, yeah. that, you know, the home front, it wasn't as, wasn't as bad as people like to make out now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People weren't missing a whole hell of a lot during that time. Yeah, Yeah, so so these artifacts, these specifically these two, were taken from Japanese Special Naval Landing Force deceased on Basio. You know, Marines and soldiers brought souvenirs home all the time, especially during World War II. I mean, that's you know, as a whole, literally, an industry, if you will, on based off of World War II artifacts, you know, sales and trade of that. but artifacts like this that you can directly tie to one of the most pivotal campaigns of any war, not the least of which is the Pacific War, are so few and far between and are so friggin' rare that it's, it's incredible to think about these artifacts and what those artifacts represented and what they saw. You know, when we were talking about the shipwrecks at Midway, we were talking about, you know, Oh, Nagumo climbed out of that window, and mm-hmm. you know, Frank Jack Fletcher stood right by that, you know, whatever. This is not unlike yeah. that. You know? right. I mean, these were at Basio. These mm-hmm. were there, you know. 
who knows who walked by that cap or that helmet. It's fascinating to think about that kind of stuff. Hard to get a hold of, too. You're very, yeah, very. So this is an aspect of the war that we have not touched on at all, but it all fits into the whole theme. This is the CBI, you know, China, Burma, India theater, and of course the big P-40, you know, flying tiger warhawk above us. Pretty obvious representation of that. And it's definitely a topic we're going to have to cover in, in due time. Uh, I, I got a good buddy of mine, Sean, who, who's, that's his thing is the CBI, and he's been climbing up my backside. Yeah, he's like, we need the CBI. I was like, yeah, we'll get there, we'll get there, we'll get there. Yeah. Got to cover the main push before we get to the right. the other part. But, yeah, there's a lot of material to cover. In here. There is. Tremendous yeah, amount, not to mention China's aspect, too. Viewers will probably remember us talking about Waltz Ridge on Cape Gloucester, and I mentioned RV Bergen. You know, again, these are the oral histories. I knew, and we've, we've bypassed some as we've gone through, but these are the, I'll say it again, these are the lifeblood of the National World War. Mm-hmm. And it was the oral histories. Yeah, it was an honor trying to track all these guys down and get to know them and talk to them mm-hmm. after all these years. You know, it's uh, rather incredible. Yeah, so when you say, you know, he's an old friend, this is how you became Correct. Yeah. friends I'm, with him. Yeah, I mean, these, these guys were interviewed by me or mm-hmm. however, whatever, either here or at their house, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. I don't, frankly, don't remember where I interviewed them until I see it now. I think I interviewed Bertie here at the at the museum, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, no, these were people that, yeah, this was done here. But these are people that I came to know not just one time, but for years, mm-hmm. with very few instances. I would keep in touch with these guys all the time, you know, exchange Christmas cards with them, go see them when I was in their hometown, even if I wasn't there to interview them, whatever the case may be. They're absolutely astonishing human beings, all of them, every one of them. Buddy. There he is. Yep. So one Great of the, American. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. One of the aspects of the war that we're, you know, neck deep in right now is Operation Forager. Mm-hmm. And you know, make a big part of the, the museum's exhibit on Operation Forager is relatively extensive compared to some of the others, mainly because of the fact that. It occurred at the same time as D-Day, mm-hmm. and it shows off, as we make this point in the show, it shows off the industrial might of this country at that time that we could not only supply a vast majority of Operation Overlord, but that we could do forager by ourselves mm-hmm. within a week, mm-hmm. well, what, 10 days. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible, absolutely incredible. Yep. Notice the women, the yeah, I see. mother mm-hmm. and child in the cage. Shadow of the yeah. 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 mother and child. Mission Beyond Darkness. Yep. Yep. Keith Rinstrom talking about Marpy Point. Mm. Mike Murbosh, Jane Gramage, Alex Frashu, Ralph Weymouth. Mm. <laughs> that's, 
unfortunately, that's the way it is. So the Philippines takes up a huge portion of the galleries, if you have I can imagine. obvious reasons. Uh, you know, late-day golf. This is the only major urban combat that the United States sees in the Pacific is, of course, in Manila, which we've yet to cover, but we're going to. So, but you name he who shall not be named. Indeed. Indeed. Well, you have to. You know, you got to talk do. about him. You, you got to talk about him. We have fun with MacArthur, but he uh, was huge a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, huge part yeah. of it. Yeah. Huge part of it. <clears throat> so we're going to be talking someday mm-hmm. about Leyte. And a good map here shows you, how, you know, where all of the invasions leading up yeah, to I mean, Luzon. If you, if you just look at this, mm-hmm. that's a lot of freaking territory. It's like 5,000 islands. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous. How many islands. And I mean, we landed here. Mm-hmm. We landed here, 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 here. I mean, it's mm-hmm. in, in other places in between, but these are yeah. just the major landings. Yeah. I mean, it was, if, if, without looking at it too deeply just right now, it was a tremendous tremendous operation. Absolutely. Absolutely tremendous mm. operation. There's another Medal of Honor here? Another Medal of Honor, yeah. That's Art Jackson's Medal of Honor from uh, Peleliu. Mm-hmm. Art was a good friend of the museum. Um, my brother-in-arms, Tommy Lofton, went up to Art's house and brought that medal back from mm. his wife, Miss Sally. Uh, I don't remember exactly when, but I remember they put that sucker in there the day before we opened these galleries. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, we talked um, when I did my Submarine Museum of the Pacific uh, walkabout. We talked about the fact the Medal of Honor, one of the submarine COs was in there and was stolen, mm. um, never to be recovered. So they have increased the security measures. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so this is a guy we're going to talk about in the future, mm. Robert Prince. Right. Uh, Robert Prince, of course, was 6th Ranger Battalion, United States Army. He led the Cabanatuan raid to free the uh, American prisoners of war that were captured at the, you know, mm-hmm. the fall of the Philippines in 1942. Mm-hmm. And he led that raid with such precision and expertise mm-hmm. that, if I remember correctly, and this is off the top of my head, there were no Americans killed in action when they stormed the camp mm-hmm. and got the POWs out of there. There were guys that died later of wounds, but there was nobody that was killed in the actual During fight. During the raid. Right. Yeah, it wow. was literally, you could not draw it up any better, and the dude was just a badass to the hardest core. Mm-hmm. Incredible guy. Absolutely incredible guy. That's the flag from the battleship Nagato mm. up there, that big sucker up there. So Nagato, of course, was in Tokyo Bay right. at the end of the war. Yeah. And seemingly every United States Navy ship that could sent people aboard Nagato to rip stuff off <laughs> and bring it home. That's where that teapot came from. That's where that flag came from, mm. where those binoculars came from. Yeah. So, so Nagato must, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think the uniform did. No, it did. Yeah, the Japanese sailor's uniform came from Battleship Nagato. Wow. I mean, that thing must have been stripped to the yeah. to the studs by the end of the occupation. And Nimitz had one of those pairs of binoculars installed in his house when he was retired. Um, yeah, so he's still like looking out over the bay. Yeah, can't really blame him. 
So, of course, now we're entering the final stages of the Pacific War here. This is 45 uh, after the Philippines. The screen above you is Iwo Jima. The screen over here is Okinawa and Kamikazes. And uh, really gets into the nitty-gritty and the dirty, dirty, dirty fighting that was all of those later war campaigns. When we get to that point, um, talking about Iwo Jima, there's a, we're going to have to do a special episode. We'll cover them in the main episode, but we're going to have to do a special episode on Rabbi Roland Gittleson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gittleson's eulogy, his sermon, if you remember, I, I read that at the uh, Indianapolis reunion. It was kind of a mm-hmm. downer. but uh, It is a downer. But it is incredibly important, and it's uh, something we're going to have to cover. So, of course, you look at this, and let's see, have they changed it? Yeah, they have not changed this yet. So recent scholarship has, and forensic scholarship, Renamed has determined that, yeah. Two of the uh, yeah. razors, yeah. There is no Navy Corps. No Navy guy Navy. anymore. No. All right. Well, the truth is important. Yes. Now, in, his, in the, all of their defense, there were two flag raisings. Oh, for sure. And for it was sure. highly likely he was involved in the first one. It's almost assured that he was, actually. Yeah. So, so this weapon here, this Japanese machine gun, which is a Type 99 light machine gun, mm-hmm. it's it's very difficult to see, and the only the only really good way to see it is to put that weapon up to your shoulder, which I've done many a time when it was in our vault here, or when it was in the World War II Museum's vault. I say ours. I'm not part of the institution yeah. anymore, but when you've been <laughs> for 15 years, it's hard to not say ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so forgive me. But this weapon is battle damaged. If you look at the handle on the left-hand side of the receiver, you'll mm-hmm. see a bullet strike there. And if you look at the rear sight where you can dial in the sight, there's the bullet continued to travel upwards through the back end of the receiver. And if you put the weapon to your shoulder and you put it to your you put it to your right shoulder and look down the the sight as if you were going to fire the weapon, you can see the travel path of the round, the American mm-hmm. .30-06 round, and it is planted right between your eyes. Yeah. So whoever had that weapon took one. Did not literally. Survive. No, not a right. chance. Right between the eyes. Interesting. Wow. It's most Japanese weapons have some sort of battle damage to them because they didn't give up. Mm-hmm. The hood underneath the helmet is called a flash hood, for obvious reason, flash bombs. Now this music I recognize actually from another HBO miniseries. From the 90s that predates the Pacific, this music is actually from a Tom Hanks miniseries, From the Earth to the Moon. Hmm. So, yeah, you can tell I'm a space geek because I recognize <laughs> right, that. Yeah. Brian it looks Eno like they repurposed it here. So these are some kamikaze artifacts, UDT artifacts, things like that. Um, if I remember number 10. Yeah, USS Evans, Destroyer Evans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are all. Art. She got hit, I think, by. If I'm again off the top of my head, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I, I want to say like five suicide planes hit Evans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't say, but it, it something like that. And a frogman's fins. I do have an issue with the hat. You've got a chief petty officer's hat band with an officer's That's right. cap insignia. Sure enough. So. You, you were testing me, Seth, and I caught it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And we were still wearing these wool sweaters when I was enlisted. They're great sweaters. Um, don't know if you can see. Yeah, it's pretty dark right Yeah, there. it's dark in here. But, but yeah, those are the uh, Frogman's 
shorts, a K-bar knife, and the short frogman's fins. So I assume this JG's uniform is from a frogman as well. Uh, no, he was aboard USS New Jersey. And that's, okay. that, that can be kind of confusing when you're looking at some of these things. You see a grouping of things, and then you see a uniform, and you assume that it's connected to the same person. And unfortunately, more often than not, that's not the case. Sometimes it is, mm-hmm. but more often than not, it's not. And it can be totally confusing. And the prop that is came from, from Kamikaze? Correct, yeah. So there was a gentleman who lived here in New Orleans that I interviewed, I knew, a guy named Roy Monpat. He was aboard USS Evans. Uh, I forget what his... He was a Blue Jacket aboard Evans. Regardless, at one time, he was the president of the association, the Union Association for Evans. And as the association was dissolving due to not many participants being around any longer, the association gave all of the artifacts that they had to this institution and the USS Alabama and Mobile. So the prop... These pieces all came from one of the several kamikazes that hit Evans, and the rest of them are in Mobile in a little special compartment aboard the battleship. Okay. And that prop weighs about 150 pounds. Okay. That thing weighs a friggin' ton. Yeah. yeah, I mean, again, you know, it's it's a repeating story, but you see a lot of these personal stories that that are people that are either deceased or Mm -hmm. or were uh, famous at the time, like Father Joseph O'Callaghan, things like that. Um, talks today at the uh, conference. Yeah. Yeah. One of the talks today at the conference is about how the war didn't end when the war ended. And mm-hmm. um, we're not going to talk, I'm not going to talk about that right now, but it's a great point that we want do want to talk about at the appropriate time. But yeah, like pointing to submarines here, drawing the news from a logistics standpoint. And Gene Flucky, who I got to know, talked about that. Submarine campaign in general. Subs are subs are covered in this gallery, not unlike we cover them in the show. Mm. They're scattered throughout where appropriate. Mm. You know, you don't see a lot about them. You see a lot about them in the very beginning because it's that new naval warfare that I was talking right. about. And then you don't see a lot about them until you start getting into 1944. Mm. For good reason, frankly, yeah. you know. I mean, there, there were, <laughs> as we know, the first mm-hmm. few patrols weren't all that successful. But by 44, 45, yeah. you know, they're really starving Japan to death. Really. Mm-hmm. This is something we covered on, uh, I forget which episode it was, but R.K. Morgan was a pilot of the Memphis Bell and then became the pilot of that airplane, Dauntless Dottie. So it's interesting to know that Memphis Bell was named after his then-girlfriend dude that he was engaged to. Uh-huh. Morgan was a bit of a philanderer, shall we say. And uh, he, uh, his, I cannot remember her name, uh, the Memphis Bell. I can't remember her actual name. Right. Uh, but she basically said, you know, the hell with you. <laughs> she left. And then he wound up meeting Dottie, Dorothy, he married her, and named his B-29 Dauntless Dottie after his wife. Yeah, now we've got just the two photos, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We covered those. I talked about the fact I've been to both. Yeah, and you'll see, you know, you'll see some of the imagery here. It's it's pretty hardcore stuff. Yeah. Because this covers what we did to Japan at the end of the war. You know, this is Curtis LeMay's fingerprints. This is Mm -hmm. strategic bombing. This is just firebombing. I mean, this is just 
torching Japan to the ground. Yeah. Famous quote, you win a war by killing people, when you, and when you kill enough of them, they give up. Yeah. But these images right here are why we firebomb Japan. Absolutely. These right here. So I have a friend, son of Sur USS Indianapolis survivor. Yeah, no, it's not. I wasn't was going to talk about Lewis Haynes, but son of USS Indianapolis survivor James Belcher, whose mother, James Belcher, was a, stayed in the Navy after the war, after the ship was sunk, got stationed in Sasebo, married a Japanese woman, mm -hmm. and that's Jim, and Jim, my friend, Jim Belcher's mom, and she was being trained to do exactly that when she was a girl growing up in Japan. Yeah. And so, yeah, and Lewis Haynes... Um, died about the time I began my association with the um, survivors of the Indianapolis. He was uh, a physician, a senior uh, physician on the ship. And so uh, Modisher was a JG, another physician on the ship. And so, yeah, these uh, guys, I know their story well. I can't remember... <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry, you picked that up on the mic. But I um, can't remember if it's here. We co we cover, yeah, it's not here. It's across the street in Arsenal Democracy where we talk mm -hmm. about the delivery of the atomic bomb. Mm -hmm. There's Indianapolis oral histories in there. Mm -hmm. I couldn't remember if they were here or over there. They're across the street. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, these are a wealth yeah. of, oops. These are a wealth of stories here. I mean, all these guys. This was one of the coolest people. This guy here, too. I went to Iwo Jima with him, with Jim Goodrich. Mm -hmm. Of course, Woody, Mike Murlage. Yeah, I knew Woody Williams as well. This dude here, Dave Severance, who is right. still alive mm -hmm. as of today, which is December 8th, 2023. He was the company commander for Easy Company, 28th Marines. Wow. The guys who raised the flag on Iwo Jima. And he knew them all. And uh, Colonel was, Dave. So he was a captain at the time. Correct. And he's still alive today. Correct. And, and well, to my knowledge, to mm. my knowledge. And I looked, I mean, I looked a couple months ago, but mm. still, yeah, he was still, still kicking. Cool guy. Mm. Loved him some Outback. Mm. <laughs> Outback steak goss with him several wow. times. All right. Well, thank you for that, oh, Seth. Yeah. yeah.